My name is Anda Ginska, and this is Pros and Content. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch, a digital content intelligence platform. I'm a massive data nerd who's fallen in love with storytelling. And so on the Pros and Content podcast, we will be featuring a series of really incredible leaders who believe in storytelling and who have different perspectives on the importance, measurement, scalability, and optimization of storytelling. Today on the podcast, we have a really special guest with whom I have a Twitter love story going on. His name is Chad Mitchell, and he is the VP and head of content and digital platforms for TD Bank. I was so excited about this conversation because Chad and I have been going back and forth on all sorts of digital platforms talking about content for the last almost year. And I've always thought his perspective is so fascinating because he has a ton of experience in a lot of different industries, working both on the communications and the marketing side of the house, really thinking strategically about content. He started his career on the Hill in politics, then went on to work for the biggest retailer in the world, Walmart, and now is working for a disruptor brand, TD Bank, that is really trying to disrupt the financial industry. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I think it's one of the best summaries on the role of content and the challenges as well as opportunities that we have around it as communications and marketing professionals. Here's my conversation with Chad Mitchell. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another session of Pros and Content. I am so excited to welcome someone here today who actually I think might be the only person I've ever met on Twitter. <laughs> it was funny. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome, Chad. Thank you. How are you? It's great to be here. Very exciting. Yeah, I did. I was stalking you on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> it just shows the power of sort of podcasting and networking. Yeah, we, we actually met podcast. through a podcast. Yeah, That's we true. did. We, we, you were on another podcast talking about what Notch does, and it was a breakthrough moment for me. And I can remember sitting at a traffic light, pounding the steering wheel and saying, <laughs> somebody finally gets it. They know how to measure content and, and show us ROI. And then I, I stalked you on Twitter and you responded and the rest has sort of been history. Well, you also, I saw your tweet where you were like, I'm, I'm smacking my steering wheel yeah, or something. I was. Yeah. And, and I thought, oh my God, I can't believe I found someone who feels as strongly about this as I do. I'm sure we the people talk. that were in that traffic light queue with me thought I was crazy. <laughs> like, what is that guy doing? But I was just so excited because we had wrestled with this problem for years at, mm. at Walmart. And you know, it's one of the things about the content that you sort of create in the corporate space can be fuzzy if you right. don't know what you're what you're looking for. And we knew what we were trying to measure at Walmart. We just didn't know how to do it. Right. And then you're on the radio or on the podcast saying this is how you do it. And I was like, oh, my God, this is yeah, it. So this then, is the moment. So basically what happened was we got in touch. Mm -hmm. We got on a phone call. And I think we were both kind of equally passionate and talking about how content should be measured. And you know what's what's amazing for me as an entrepreneur is. I dreamt these things up. I had no idea if any of them made sense. I don't know anything about content fundamentally. I was not trained to be a content marketer. I was not supposed to be in the creative space. I'm a data nerd. So to be able to talk to essentially my counterpart from a content and a creative standpoint and to hear that it resonates, it just means so much. So first of all, that conversation was awesome for me. It was one of those like, oh my God, yeah, it's worth it. Like I'm doing this for a reason. And then you introduced us to Walmart and very quickly Walmart became one of our most amazing and best customers. So thank you for that. Sure. My pleasure. And thank um, you for being on the podcast. Yeah. I think it's great to be here. I want to jump in and, and just hear a bit about your your um, context and your background because we were just talking about your your crazy years that you spend living in that amazing and freakish town that Walmart has built essentially in Arkansas. But I would love to hear, I know you've always been kind of at the intersection of comms and marketing. Content has always been something you've been super passionate about. Obviously, that's why we started talking. I would just love to hear a little bit about your journey and how you decided to go from Walmart to a bank. Yeah, um, for sure. So like, it's it gets even crazier because I started my career in politics. And uh, growing up in the Washington, D.C. area, I think it's kind of natural for kids to fall into into politics. And I did. Um, we didn't have a terribly political household, but we were we were very much into consuming news and current events. And my dad worked for the Department of Defense. So I was sort of tangentially in that world and then did some volunteer work in high school. And it, it grew into an internship on the Hill. And then I went down to Richmond, Virginia and worked in the General Assembly for four years. And I just I loved politics. I loved everything about it. I loved um, I loved the way that we got policy through. I loved running elections. It, it, it is like the greatest content marketing experience ever because, and I didn't know it at the time, um, but you circle the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November, you know what your date is, you back out your editorial calendar and you know from the very beginning, like, how do I build a plan that results in my person getting elected or reelected, whatever the case may be. 
and it's high stakes. It's, you know, it's, if you win, you've got a job. If you lose, then, you know, you're, you're out of a job and you're, you're looking for another campaign. And the entire time I was doing that, I just sort of scoffed at traditional marketers, you know, I, and, and I was like, I don't, I don't do marketing. I don't sell stuff. And as I've unpacked it over the years, I, I realized from the very beginning that I, I think I've been a marketer, an unintentional marketer, because I had to sell people on a candidate or I had to sell people on policy. And a lot of times I think that can be tougher than trying to sell somebody a product, totally, you know, yeah. because I just need to spend 20 bucks on something big deal. Well, I need to vote for somebody yeah. who's going to govern me or I need to get on board with a policy change that could impact my taxes or my lifestyle. Mm. And and I think I've sort of been in the space my entire life. And then from politics, I went into trade associations doing traditional communications work. I have a journalism degree. And from there, I then um, went into agency world for, for my first time back in the mid-2000s, uh, bordering on, yeah, 2007 to 2009. And I was trying to build a digital practice um, for a small boutique agency in Georgetown and, and had a lot of fun doing that. And... Um, what I found is, and the reason that I think I admire someone like you so much and entrepreneurs in general is that I really wanted to learn what it was like to run a business. And I worked for a great CEO who gave me a front row seat and I realized that it scared the bejesus out of me. That it sucks. It's yeah, like <laughs> no, looking at our profit <laughs> margins and then, and then having to track down clients to pay bills. Like I just realized I didn't have the stomach for it. It scared me. Yeah. And I've told people, it'd be like if you wanted to be a doctor and the first time you observed surgery and saw yeah, blood, you, you pass out. <laughs> I, I fainted. Um, oh, my God. And so it just so happened at the time that a recruiter from Walmart was looking for somebody. And I thought, well, there's a company that's not going out of business. Yeah. Um, and what a crazy ride it was. I started on a team that was stood up to help support Walmart's efforts to expand its license to operate in cities like New York and Chicago and D.C. and L.A., Ultimately, we were unsuccessful in New York, which is one of the things on my career that I'm most upset about because <laughs> I think we should be we should have been in New York City. But we were able to build stores in Washington and Chicago and a bunch of those other places. And and then that was just a crazy ride for eight years and spent some time in Arkansas, which is, you know, nutty, like living inside the Beltway, but for just different reasons. Um, and then I was, you know, sitting at Walmart and I realized, you know, one of the things that I didn't know a lot about was my tech stack. And I thought that as a comms person slash marketer, um, I had a big enough team that I could just sort of leave it in somebody else's hands. But I didn't really understand, uh, you know, our servers and denial of service attacks. And here my team's overseeing the corporate website for the world's largest company. I don't really know what I'm doing. Um, so I spent t uh, about 10 months with one of our vendors who built the CMS that Walmart's corporate website is built on. And um, while I was there, then the recruiter from TD came and I had met the CCO who I now report to at a previous event. And I really loved the way that he was able to articulate where he wanted his content team to go and how he wanted TD stories to come to life. And so I didn't really see myself going into banking. I never saw myself going into retail. I didn't know anything about retail when I got there. but um, you know, it's, it's pretty, I think it's somewhat easy to learn the fundamentals of retail and banking is every bit as complex, way more complex. And so I'm starting to learn the ins and outs of banking. And, um, I think when, when, when all is said and done, I'll, I'll have had an amazing set of experiences with a lot of different kinds of brands and sort of bouncing from politics to comms, to reputational management, to crisis yeah. communications, um, executive communications I got to do a little bit of at Walmart. Um, it's it's really opened my eyes to just a whole lot of different forms of communication that I didn't know existed when I was back in school. And, you know, people often ask me, like, how did you end up as the digital guy? Or how did you end up as the social guy? And I'm like, I didn't really set out. I just learned sort of the building blocks of communications. And then I think I've been adapting to new forms. Well, is being uh, the content guy mean that you're also the digital guy and the social guy by default? Um, I think in some organizations it does. And we're pretty nimble and, and pretty scrappy. You know, those are great corporate buzzwords for we have yeah. a small team and not a ton of money <laughs> at TV. Um, but we still find a way to make it work. So, yeah, we run the platforms, both our internal and external uh, digital platforms. We then are responsible for creating the content that we publish to those platforms and then we end up with oversight for our official sort of news handle through which we communicate company announcements. And then we work closely at TD with the with the brand marketing social team, just like we did it at Walmart. So I think that at least my experiences at Walmart and TD have led me to believe that no one has really figured out 
exactly where to put like the digital team or the mm-hmm. content team. Should it sit here? Should it sit over there? You know, is there a center of excellence? What are the the matrix relationships that the content team should have with other people? Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like uh, we got passed around a lot at Walmart as we were trying to figure it out. Um, I think in some ways we were ahead of the curve. And at TD, you know, we we know where we sit, which is right between corporate communications and marketing because of the way we're structured as an organization. Mm. Well, that was going to be my next question, actually. You've you've been through so many different types of kind of functional areas. You've seen the role of content in each of them. Where do you think it's supposed to sit if you were to have an axis that goes from comms to marketing? Is there even an axis like that anymore? Is it all the same thing? Is content supposed to sit in the middle, on one side, the other? I think it should sit in the middle and be a shared responsibility. Um, and if you can get those two functions aligned, then that's great. Um, and I've, I've not validated this at all. It's like when you were telling me that you, you, don't, you didn't know anything about content, you, you're a data nerd and wanted to start a company. My observation at Walmart and uh, in other places is that a lot of times there's a divisive sort of relationship between communications and marketing. And I, and I think it's, this is at least the way I've tried to figure it out in my own head. If, if I were starting a company, the first group of people that I might hire would be marketers because I would want my company to be known for something and get the word out and start to generate sales and whatnot. And then you don't think about, I need a corporate communications function as you're starting a business. You don't, you don't anticipate um, having a crisis or, or messing something up and, and needing spokespeople to address you know, an issue at your company or, or a product. And you know, I think being in the corporate communications world, it, it was often easy to sit and say that a lot of the things that we're trying to manage as a PR team or as a media team or as a corporate communications team, marketing caused it. You know, you, we, we can cite a bunch of examples of creative um, that went the wrong way and not the way the brand had intended them to be. Um, and then somebody's got to come in and answer to the public outcry. And that's usually where, where CorpComs comes in. And I think for a lot of times, CorpComs was a function that was stood up to sort of support the investor relations function or just do press releases and, and drive earned media. Right. And it's evolved into a group of people who I think are really well positioned to tell the brand story. Mm. Um, but I think marketers can do that just as well. So it's a matter of like, how do we align on what it is that the company wants to do? Are we trying to drive sales? Are we trying to build mm-hmm. brand awareness? Are we trying to drive deeper customer consideration? In the Walmart case, it was like, who do we need to talk to to get them to understand that the company is not what you perceive it to be, that mm-hmm. it's actually a really good corporate citizen. They were doing some great things. And so that's where CorpComs comes in and, and sort of generates the PR side of things through mm-hmm. um, earned, owned, paid. And, and I, I like being in the environment where that we're in in TD that, you know, we can sit down with marketing. Uh, we don't have to go into a different building. We're all on the same floor. Um, we all report to the same boss. We share uh, common goals for what we want people to know about TD. And we just have different ways of telling the story. And that's mm-hmm. great because it, it allows for a lot of diversity of thought sitting around the table. And here's how I would handle it as a corp comms guy or gal, or here's how I would handle it as a marketer. Um, and then put those ideas together and really develop really strong um, narratives and creative arcs and what's our storytelling going to look like and what does an integrated editorial calendar look like. And these were all things that we just sort of looked at at Walmart, like, oh, that's what marketing is doing. This is what we're doing. I sure hope we can meet in the middle. And, yeah. and it's, it's a lot more intentional at TD. And so I think, yeah. I, I, I think both models can work depending on what you're trying to solve for. It works. Our structure works for us at TD based on you know, what our, what our persona is to the rest of the world and how we're working with marketing to raise TD's profile. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask you, what is your theoretical answer to this question? Then tell me what the reality is, okay? So um, comms and marketing, oftentimes we equate comms and the content around comms with a brand purpose and the content around marketing with more of a performance purpose. Do you think content is supposed to be a performance vehicle? I don't think there's a debate that content is one of the best ways to to really kind of push brand. But is it supposed to be a performance vehicle um, or is it not? And if the answer is yes, then I want more granularity as to how. It feels to me like it's evolved into that. Historically, the experience with a brand was probably very transactional. 
And so I just needed to know what they sold and how much it cost and where did I get it. And I think as the world has changed and people are looking for companies to share their purpose and their values and is there shared value, which I think more and more businesses are moving toward in terms of we need to explain what it is that we do and what we stand for and who we are. Um, people have, consumers have a lot more choices now than they used to. And so they don't need to make sacrifices when it comes to their ideology or their beliefs. And if a company doesn't meet that criteria, then they can probably go get it elsewhere. And so I think that what we've moved to is a world where the performance and the brand story need to be intertwined and they need to work together. And if I were to sum up the journey that I think I saw at Walmart was exactly that, which was. Walmart started to recognize that they that the reputational challenges they were facing were a drag on the marketing performance that the two uh, things interesting. the two things did become mm. so entwined that I, mm. it that's that was one of the forcing functions I think at Walmart for for comms and marketing to really get together and work on mm. you know not yeah. only explaining to customers what Walmart sold but explaining to customers and other audiences um what Walmart stood for and who they were as a company. And, you know, I think that's what we're trying to do at TD, which is explain our business offering and explain why you should interact with us and transact with us as opposed to our competitors. But then we also want you to know what we stand for with regards to um, people with diverse abilities or um, other, other communities that we work with that we want people to know. This is like in our DNA. This is what we wake up every morning and we stand for. And so I would love for people when they see our content to understand this is what I can get when I transact with them, but this is what I get as a member of this community that you know TD stands for. So I asked you for the theory and the practice. Um, in theory, I agree with you. Yeah. I, and I think the intertwined story makes a ton of sense. Um, I don't know how many companies out there actually managed to execute in practice um, as well as we would like to imagine in theory. What happens in practice? I can tell you from my observations of talking to a lot of different content teams, um, I, I tend to see kind of that there's a bit of a binary state of the world where um, either there's marketers who think content is only about brand and, you know, maybe it shouldn't even be measured. We're, we should just be making beautiful content. Or there's marketers who think that every piece of content should lead to a transaction and as such, you're measuring it that way. And so I think I feel like a lot of my goal, even with this podcast, is to say, what about the mid funnel? Like, I actually think it's all in the mid funnel. And if we really wanted to hold ourselves accountable to intertwining these worlds, we should create a category around this and metrics around it and really become um, very eloquent about what that means. So I'm curious what you think is happening in practice and yeah. how we could get it to theory. Yeah, I think your observations and the, the, the front row seat that you have in talking to leading brands and content creators um, sort of puts you in the know. And, and I think you're right that in practice, you know, we in corporate communications are goal differently. So when we write our goals at the beginning of the year, they're probably not going to look a lot like a marketer's goals. I, I'm not measured on conversions. Nobody's looking at the stories that we're telling and then trying to connect it to whether people opened a checking account or invested more money or took out a home equity line Should of they? credit. Um Eventually, but I would say that I'm not that great at that. You know, that's sort of my <laughs> secret admission, which I've told my marketing colleagues at TD, which is if we're going to meet you at the middle of the funnel, which is our goal at TD. So I'm, I'm totally on board with you that they are marketing as a whole is still going to look at bottom of the funnel, but is trying to get to more of middle of the funnel. And we in corporate affairs are being asked to sort of move from top or above the funnel, because I would say that for the majority of my career at Walmart, I think we operated above the funnel. Yeah. It was really about rehabilitating the reputation and yeah. positioning Walmart as a good corporate citizen. And un unless we were successful, marketing was going to have a hard time doing the conversion. So it was like, I know what I'm good at. And when we get somebody who's now consumed enough of our content and read enough of our stories that they, they are believing what we're saying, then we need to hand them off to somebody in marketing to close. Um, and I think what we're trying to do at, at TD is build that discipline and that rigor around what can we do to sort of drive more conversions. Right. So I think you're right in practice. Like, but I, but I also think that in some ways, at least in my opinion, I think they're different skill sets. Hmm. Um, and maybe I can learn um, and maybe I can start to develop stories and tell the brand story that then leads to conversions in a more intentional way. But right now I think I'm trying to get from top to middle Yeah, um, is where I would like our team to be a year from now is knowing that the stories we're telling are building brand awareness and 
building brand love, but those are really fuzzy things to measure to your point. And it's why I've but been- But they're important things to they, measure. They are. They're incredibly important. I think, especially in this world where more and more people are signaling that they want to do business with brands that they like and respect and stand for good things, um, that more and more, I think our content needs to go there. Um, because I, it's, you know, it's been a blessing and a curse to be in the sort of reputational corporate comm space that has fuzzy metrics. Um, because it, it sometimes doesn't hold you as accountable maybe as you should be, if you can just sort of point to, Hey, we're building brand love or we're, Mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're, we're building affinity with the brand, but marketers are able to walk in and I think show more concrete data in terms of, did it, did it lead to a sale? Did this piece of content perform, um, to your point? Like I love to create just awesome content, whether it's a brand film or a podcast or whatever the story is. And then, um, how do I connect it to whether or not it reached any goals? Harder to do. You know? Yeah. I've become obsessed with trying to figure out the answer to this question, particularly around the mid funnel. But I think one of the big overlooked insights is that there's a time element to all of this. There's no way you get someone from not even thinking about TD to thinking, being aware of TD, thinking about TD starting to love TD, converting to TD. Like that is, it takes time, right? So my obsession isn't necessarily what are the right metrics. I feel like I'm I'm already pretty clear on what metrics are right to measure different stages of the funnel. Um, and that's somewhat straightforward, I think. How we measure them, you know, can we do it faster? Can we get better data points from more places? Sure. But my obsessions become what is the right time frame, and how do we best tag content so that we understand the role it's supposed to play at any given point in time, not just the role it's supposed to play in like a silo or a snapshot. So that's what I've been thinking a lot about. And I think what to your point around like, you know, are you supposed to be qualified to be doing this? I, I don't I think I think a lot of times when people wonder about that, they think, oh, I every single content asset that I have, I have to figure out a way to tie it to conversion. But that's that's not the point. The point is you have to figure out where it stands, where it sits in the longer customer journey and have a narrative around what that customer journey is so that you can then kind of walk back and think for every single stage of this journey, do I have the right content for that stage? And maybe upper funnel content will continue to be held to an upper funnel goal. But maybe there's going to be mid-funnel content now, and we're going to hold it to a mid-funnel goal. Does that make sense? Total sense. I feel like I'm ranting. No, I, <laughs> I, I, th- I think you're right. And I mean, I think that that could be another one of the factors that leads to uh, potential tension between a, a corporate communications function and a marketing function. So you can play a longer right. game in, in CorpCom, and you can build out a longer-term editorial calendar, and you can run... I think, longer campaigns without people wondering, like, where are the immediate results? Um, I think the marketers and then the business leaders at Walmart and probably at TD are looking at, you know, daily, if not hourly, real-time sales numbers. I know data, you know, was gigantic at Walmart, and they're they're looking like, did this piece of content have the stimulus that we wanted, and is it driving sales? Um, and I think we can take a longer programmatic approach, because when you're talking about um, building brand, building reputation, you're right, it's not going to happen overnight. And what I walked into at TD was a very um, sort of episodic editorial calendar built around whatever the, the celebratory month was or the celebratory day. And it, it just felt very sort of one-off. Mm. Everything, every, every, not every piece, but a lot of the content I was looking at just felt like we're going we're gonna to celebrate this day or we're going to commemorate this month and then we're going to move on to the next month. And we're not going to talk about that for 11 more months until it comes back on next year's calendar. <laughs> and our challenge has been, well, how do we build some discipline around, you know, three or four key editorial drivers? And then what does a 12-month editorial calendar look like? And I was never able to get there at Walmart because I think we were dealing with a lot of crisis. We were reactive. We started to get proactive, but we could only plan weeks, a month in advance. And being able to sit down at TD and look at a full year um, I think has been one of the big accomplishments for our team over the last year is that I can now walk around. I'm the digital guy who walks around with a piece of paper um, <laughs> because I like being able to see the calendar. Um, and I can tell you like what we're going to do. So we've got a we've got like our 12 month annual operating plan. And then we've got a daily calendar where you can mm. get very granular and look at what we're doing and how does each thing build on another and taking more of a serial approach to developing content than a series. Because in my opinion, like a series is just 
10 profiles on you know, business leaders. So I could, I could do something on you and nine other entrepreneurs who were small business customers of, of TD. But if one builds into the other, now all of a sudden I'm, I'm creating a story, I'm creating some tension. My readers and my consumers want to see how the story is going to turn out. And, mm-hmm. and that's really sort of our mindset. So I think you've sort of hit the nail on the head with what I struggle with. And I'm always eager to prove a piece of content because I want to get more money and do more of that kind totally. of content. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't just happen overnight. You've got to, you've got to build the audience. You've got to understand the customer journey and I'm still learning what that is for a bank as opposed to a retailer. But I think hopefully the solution is by having a conversation at the onset of when you're planning for content and getting buy-in from across all the stakeholders around what it's supposed to do and how you're going to measure for it. Hopefully by doing that, then you can go back and say, actually, look, we agreed. It was six months ago. We agreed we're going to measure it this way. And here's what we did. I want more money now. Yeah. Like, wh- does that work? Or would that work? God, I hope so. Um, because that's that's the model <laughs> that's that I'm going to. That's the strategy. That's the strategy. That's the model that we're going to use at TD, which is you know we we're going to do some testing and learning. We're going to make some bets on kinds of content, and then we want to get aligned early on. It's it's why we yeah. work as closely with our colleagues in marketing as we do, and it's it's a great experience. They're they're great partners, and it really opens up a lot of different points of view that we can explore together before we launch a campaign. Um, and we understand what the content is and what some of the performance metrics need to be. And um, understanding who our audiences are and what we want them to do guides the decisions that we're going to make around who are the content creators that we should work with if we're going to go out of house, who are the distribution partners that we should work with if we're going to go out of house, and which everybody needs to do because I don't think anybody really has a strong enough distribution network on their own. Um, and then, And then how do we measure it and how do we how do we prove the ROI on this? So I think, yeah, I hope that's what people are doing because it's tough mm-hmm. to do it the other way. Yeah, you know, for I, sure. I, I did enjoy a little bit more flexibility in my license to operate at Walmart, and it, it meant that we got to do some fun stuff, but I'm not always sure if it was the right stuff. You right. Know? And so I'd like to do the fun stuff that is also that the is right also stuff. right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. We'll be right back to pros and content after this brief message. Pros and Content Podcast is brought to you by Notch, the content intelligence platform for brands. For a demo, and to learn how to best plan, measure, optimize, and benchmark your content marketing strategy, visit us at notch.com. K-N-O-T-C-H dot com. Notch. It's all you'll ever need. Um, Tell me a little bit about how it has felt to to evolve as a content leader and as a creative in a world where data has just become so much more important. I mean, it's it's now you're basically saying it's now the only way I'm going to get more money to do this stuff. And I want to make sure it's right. That might not have been the case, you know, 15 years ago. Um, how have you evolved and grown as a leader? And how have you made sure that you kind of upskilled along the way? I think there's, there's two things. I don't want to use the word terrify, but they, they, they do terrify <laughs> but... me a, a bit, which is, um, never in my career before has have I seen technology and sort of changing consumption habits of content be able to be radically changed in 24 hours. Mm. So all the major platforms, we don't need to name them, but like they can change their algorithm. And what I knew yesterday is now not the way that I need to push content today. Totally. Um, it didn't used to be that way. You wrote a press release, you sent out a broadcast email, you did a blast fax, and we did that for seven years. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my career early on in politics at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce was like Groundhog Day because we were fighting on uh, malpractice and reform, legal reform. And it was the same thing every year. You know, you'd do the same campaign, and then depending on what the makeup was in Congress, you either failed or you were, were successful. You didn't need to change your communication styles. And so I think there's there's two things. One, Data should make us better practitioners if you are willing to trust the data. And I think what I saw at Walmart was when we, and I, it wasn't my team, it was one of my colleagues who's just really, really good at what he does. Um, he started to drive the data practice, I guess, at Walmart or the, the, the use of data and analytics to inform content. And it was rough for him because he had to go back to highly um, uh, confident communicators and tell them that their communication wasn't working quite as well. So there would be data performance metrics, 
Um, mm-hmm. We started to use some AI to basically analyze our content to see if we were striking the right tone. And it was c- controversial because you're you're going and telling a, a practiced, you know, a seasoned communicator, you need to change because your tone is being construed this way <laughs> or the data me- the data is telling us this. And one of my bosses at Walmart, you know, said, I, I just want to have informed gut because I, I don't know that it's true of marketers in general. I can't speak for marketers, um, but I can I can speak for most of the corporate communications or corporate affairs people that that deal with crisis and reputation. We really like to trust our gut. Um, you're you're in the throes of a crisis. It's unfolding around you in real time. And sometimes you don't have the luxury of like waiting on data. You just got to make a call. Totally. Um I don't think you should be doing that all the time. You you can't just have a gut feeling that this piece of content is going to work, and therefore we're just going to keep creating this content, even though the data is screaming at you that it's wrong, right? Or the data is telling you that you need to you need to distribute it here. Yeah. And I think one of the the most interesting exercises we went through because then people were challenging they were challenging the methodology when we first started to introduce data in a big way. They would challenge the methodology, or they would challenge the messenger. And so I, my recommendation for people who are maybe at the beginning or they're trying to introduce data and analytics to like a content team or to a corp comms team is um, make sure that your messenger has maybe spent some time in those disciplines um, mm. because we're, we're, we all have a lot of pride um, and we don't want somebody coming in who really is an unbiased broker. My, mm-hmm. my colleague at Walmart um, used to say you wouldn't ask the chef to critique their own food and write the <laughs> review because they're going to be biased. And so if we all had to evaluate our own content, I'm sure we would say it's great. So mm-hmm. then you use data and you use AI and you use the tools that are out there to tell you, you know, you're not as smart as you thought you were. Um, but people just... Well, it, not even that. Maybe it tells you you're very smart in some ways and not that smart in others. It could, totally. So I, I think data should be your friend. Um, I, I probably will continue to believe that there's always going to be an aspect of my job that you know your gut i think you should still be allowed to use your gut um in totally, whatever field of course. you're in and so the, the all the data and analytics could be screaming at you that you're doing it wrong but maybe you just have this feeling that you can catch lightning in a bottle and it and it works and and great but um uh i i think it's incredibly important and and i think as far as like just adapting to it um i never set out to to go into digital. I didn't even know what digital was when I was in college. It didn't exist. I can remember the first computer lab opening at Penn State with the with the boxy little Macintosh. And I was like, what are these things? <laughs> um, I wrote my my term papers as a, as a senior, like 25-page term papers on a typewriter. I can remember getting up in the middle of the night and type, banging out a line when I thought it, it, you know a, a great passage would come to me. Um, and so I just wanted to be a writer. I just wanted to be a communicator. And I've I think I've been open to to change um although my former team at walmart would tell you i just always hated snapchat i never gave it a chance i just didn't i didn't think it made sense especially for who our audiences were but looking at other formats and other vehicles to communicate i've just been open to how you can reach an audience but again i think it comes back to the data question which is who's the audience you're trying to reach and then where are they and so for us at walmart we knew um, that our associates were over-indexed on Instagram and Facebook. So when mm. we wanted to make a decision or a recommendation about where our CEO might want to go to be able to reach out to associates directly, we used the data to inform. And it was really hard to look and see 70, 75, 80% of Walmart associates were on those platforms and then make a decision not to. Mm. You know, for us at TD, I think we haven't run this this experiment yet, but I think it will come back and tell us like LinkedIn for for our employees and for the people we're trying to reach might be the place where we want to make a big bet. Um, but it could be something that I'm not even aware of yet. So I think just being open to it, um, but it's, it's terrifying, you know, to write a communications plan and to to sort of bake a full year of content knowing that the algorithm could change or the company could, you know, not be around or people's access to this thing doesn't exist. And now so, what do I do? Do you think that because of this fear um, that it would make sense for brands to divest as much as possible from social and try to build their own and operate it and build that, you know, treasure trove of first party data through that direct relationship with the audience? Because I actually, my my set of assumptions is that content has to be very tied to first party data collection. If you're going to get people to come to something, you got to give them value in exchange. The only way you really do that digitally is through content. So it would make sense to me that if you're going to make content, you're going to try to actually get people 
to come back to you as opposed to put it into a black box. What are your thoughts on that? So let's let's go back to the question you asked earlier about theory and practice. So in theory, yeah. in theory I think you're completely right. Um, and again, if I were to compare it to my days in politics, you your your mailing list, your data mm-hmm. in politics was your treasure trove. Mm-hmm. Like you went out and built your prospects. You went and canvassed door to door. Um, you had people probably didn't sign up for email until I was late, later in my career. As funny as that is to believe, um, mm. but that that data was everything, and you owned it. And when you wanted to do a fundraiser, when you wanted to do get out the vote messaging, that was your list. And as I started to get into this at, at Walmart and learn more about like what we were doing to build out our Facebook page and what we were doing for fan acquisition, you then had to pay Facebook to go back and talk to your own people. Um, and so that has always been sort of appalling to me from the very beginning is I gave you all this money to build this community. And now in order to get access to the community, I've got to pay you again yeah. or else you're going to throttle my message and yep. I can't get it to 100% of my list. When you were doing direct mail or you're doing phone banking in politics, you owned your list. And so you knew you had 100%. You, you didn't have 100% completion rate, but you didn't have a gatekeeper. That right. Was, so, so in theory, yes, I totally agree with you. In practice, I don't know how, to, I don't know how you would do that. Um, I mean, I have some ideas how you would do it. It feels like it would be a gigantic investment. And I wonder if had, had sort of the community of marketers and corporate affairs and content creators known from the beginning that we were going to make these gigantic investments in a platform like Facebook and then not really own our own data or own our own community. I wonder if different decisions would have been made mm. in terms of being big advertisers. So, so it feels to me like when I get up every morning and read my uh, various trade newsletters or I listen to podcasts and I hear people sort of bemoan Facebook and Instagram, yet they're still the biggest spenders on the platform. So that points to me mm-hmm. um, that in theory, you're right, but in practice, we're we're doing the opposite of what we say we want to do, mm. which is which is build yeah. this community where we own the first party data. Um, yes, I yes, think I, I think love that. Potentially, what's happening is that um, there's certain categories that are very short term focused, very instant gratification focused, because they have to be. Um, I would think that to some extent the lower consideration product categories are that. So CPG, for example, um, they have to invest in performance marketing on social channels because if they don't, they feel like they're losing market share, especially to the newer startups, right? But they don't necessarily have to invest to acquire that person to take them back because ultimately the cost of doing that would be too high given the cost of the product that they're selling, right? So I think they're stuck in this loop this short-term feedback loop where it's very hard to win there's no way to win i think i mean the only way to win is to make a massive investment that you can't really justify to your boss so forget about that so it's just a very cynical perspective and i think those are are actually the biggest spenders on these platforms now if you think about a td or um an a ford or you know just higher consideration product i think it makes sense i think the cost to ltv ratio makes sense to try to acquire your own audience. And you can use the social channels to bring people back. But I still think it makes sense because the LTV of actually having someone that you own, as opposed to having to go retarget them over the course of the next 10 years, is just, I think the economics just make a ton of sense. Yeah, I I think you're totally right. I just think I don't know if anyone's built the economic model, but I hope I hope they do. I hope they do too. <laughs> These would be it would be dis- I think it would be disruptive and it could be game changing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it would happen in these higher consideration categories sure. and content. I think will be the way in which it, it is the vehicle through which this starts happening. Yeah, I, I believe. think so. I it think has so. to be. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about. I'm curious about politics. At the beginning of our conversation, you made a comment about how um, you were you were going out there to try to get people to care, right? Um, to want to vote for someone based on issues. How did you deal with the fact that not a lot of people care? <laughs> um, was your role to kind of get people to care or were you just trying to get those who already cared to vote for someone? Yeah, um, I don't know. I, I, I don't know that I've really ever unpacked it that way. I think um, it, it feels to me like when I started and, and when I would refer to myself as a kid, so like back in my high school days and my college days, mm. um, it felt like voter turnout was was higher. I think statistically we could probably look yeah. back and, and prove that it was. Um, and, you know, it's just become so divisive that I think people mm. just decide to opt out. And yep. so 
I'm not sure I ever really approached it as as caring. I think it was um, you, you know who your your voters are. So I mean, you talk about like just unbelievable data. So you can look at people who had voted in the last three or four or five elections, and you right. knew that they were you had a turnout model, and then you would you would go and bang on your prospects who you knew were likely to vote. And so they were, I think, already highly engaged in the process. So it was a matter of making sure that they were going to go to the polls and vote on that day. So I think it was a matter of making sure that our candidate stood for what they stood for or as much as what they could stand for and, and then would go vote. Um, it's really funny, though. I think if I were to try to throw myself back in that world right now, I would probably pull my hair out. I think my wife and I watch the news and we watch what people say on Facebook and we watch the debates and we try to we try to listen to it and, and you know, present a unbiased point of view to our children who are who are just sort of understanding politics and, and this whole process. And um, there is a lot of not caring out there. I mean, you know, with with politics, with just anything. And so how do you build empathy and how do you how do you connect with people on a personal basis and then get them to care enough to go vote? Mm. Um, Man, I'm going to have to think about that question. Like, you're going to give me a lot to think about. <laughs> well, um, it's in it's my an interesting time. one, yeah. I think, because when you were talking, you obviously your experience is from a while ago, but I'm thinking about it in today's from today's perspective. And I was actually going through my head, like, of the things you've done in your career, which one is the hardest? Which one, you know, if you're going to use content to persuade anyone to do anything, is it harder to get someone to vote? Is it harder to get someone to think that a massive retailer, the largest employer in the U.S., is a great company, or is it harder to sell a financial product or to get people to believe that a financial brand is actually a really good company. Um, I don't know. I, it feels like all of them are pretty hard challenges. Yeah, they were and for different reasons. And one of the things that really appeals to me about the TD job is that we're I'm now with a challenger brand and mm -hmm. I've never mm -hmm. really been with a challenger right. brand. I, I started working for folks who were already holding elected office. So I never had right. to work for a challenger. Um, at one point, my boss did run for state Senate. So he was he was running for an office that he didn't already hold. Um, Walmart was really hard. Um, and I think it was really hard at the beginning because we didn't understand. We didn't have data to prove the conclusions we were drawing about why people didn't like the company. So we had some guesses. Mm -hmm. um, you would hear anecdotally, or when we tried to go into a market, you'd go to a city council hearing. And so you had a pretty good idea of why people didn't like you. But until we understood what is it exactly that is holding people back from thinking that Walmart's a good corporate citizen, okay, we got it. We figured it out. Now let's go develop stories around those. And oh, by the way, the operators need to now make sure that the store experience lives up to what aspirationally we're saying that shopping at Walmart is, is really like. And now at TD, it's like I look at the big banks and I think, God, they're they're spending a lot on content and they've got a national footprint and they've got all of these things in their favor. And so what can we do as as um, a national bank that has more of like a regional footprint from Maine to Florida, but has an almost impeccable reputation um, based on, you know, not being part of the, the bailout that happened years ago and um, a lot of just deep affinity with our customers. So how do we make more people aware of you know, like the little engine that could, you know, what, totally. what, what is TD? Who are we inside the footprint and what can we do that? Um, I would have a very hard time telling you what was the hardest. Mm. I, I really would. I would, I would struggle with that because there were, there were challenges in every job. And then when you were successful, they just felt unbelievably satisfying. Yeah. That, you know, we, we did it. We can Sounds spike like the startup. football, you know, high five, <laughs> celebrate a little while. And then it's like, uh, we got to go right back to work. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, because that's one of the thing about you know corporate communications that differed from politics is if you won on election day, you could you could take some time off, you know, and really yeah. celebrate. Um, but it never felt like we got to celebrate our wins for very long at at Walmart, and we we do the same thing to ourselves at TD that you're just go 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 grind. It, yeah, it's a grind. Um, but it's it's the kind of grind I like. Uh, you know, it's not for everybody, but I I I like that. I like getting up and having a new challenge and trying to outdo what you did the day before. But not having to look at running out of money. <laughs> yeah, um, no, you know that 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 was obviously a gigantic benefit at Walmart, and and I think if somebody says, well, how will you know when you're successful at TD? If I can do, you know, on a on a proportional basis, I guess, or a representative basis, if I if I can score some of the same kind of wins or successes at TD, knowing that I'm operating on a fraction of the budget, mm -hmm. um, I think that will validate 
some of the things that I think about myself, some of the things that I think about as a leader, some of the the plans that I'm trying to develop yeah. is um, I I would never want to just be known for having built a good team and been successful because I was at Walmart or the Fortune One and you had almost unlimited resources at your disposal if you needed them. And so I I like working in this environment where where we've got to be um, smart, yeah, more mindful of totally. what we're spending and and um. I, I would love to go back to trying everything. Uh, <laughs> I miss producing a podcast like this. I, I miss, you know, trying to think about like what a brand documentary would look like or what's the what's the unexpected thing that people aren't expecting. Where where are they not expecting to see TD? And, and, and oh, why is a bank doing that? I want to do that. I don't know what that is yet. And I, I don't know that I would tell people. And do it right on now. on a budget. Yeah, and do it on a budget. <laughs> right. I'm sure you'll figure it out. We'll try. Last question. What advice do you have for content leaders that are just starting off in their careers? I would just be really open to, um, like I said earlier, this the, the landscape is changing every day. Um, and you've got to be willing to check your ego at the door. Um, you've got to be collaborative. I think more now than ever, I think everybody says that, but it's really hard to be successful um, in a silo or in a in a position where you're you're really not working across you know the aisle or across divisions, and you're going to get way more leverage and you're going to get way more efficiencies, and I think you're going to be way more ex- successful when you look for you know sort of you, you build your coalition of the willing, um, and that can be hard as a as a new if you take a new job or as a new leader because you're trying to figure out who these people are. Um, but it, it sort of goes back to politicking. You got to build consensus. You got to build your majority so that when you want to do something big and hairy and scary, and like, we've never seen this before at TD, well, I've got 20 people sitting beside me who all want to do this. And so you've got your, your coalition. I think in some cultures you can still be a a solo practitioner with a great idea and get it greenlit. But I think more and more cultures have more of a consensus building apparatus. We certainly do at TD. And so it's like, how do I build my, my support mechanism? and and I and I also just think as somebody who hires people and as somebody who is is building now a team at TD, um, I just want way more diversity of thought around the table. And if that's you know what you look like or what your sexual orientation is or what any of those things is going to make for better content, mm-hmm. um, whatever your different life experience is. Mm-hmm. And I discovered um, when I got to Walmart that I had a tendency to hire people who were just like me. So we'd get into the interview and we would find out that we had golf in common or that we both went to Penn State or that we, you know, both were of a certain political party and we liked the same wine. It was like, oh my God, this person's going to be great to work with. And it took me a long time to realize that I needed to be hiring for my gaps and what are the things that I'm not good at. And I was really, really bad at project management and process. I don't like either of those things still to this day. I'd much rather fly by the seat of my pants and, you know, have a great idea and then just go off and execute it. And that's not scalable. It's not sustainable. You're you're trying to build a content team. You're trying to build a branded newsroom. You got to know where your creative briefs are. You got to have process. Um, so I would just encourage people to to work with as many people as possible who don't come from your background because it, it just it informs the content. And I think that when to go back to what I something I said earlier, when we can look at brands, my brands, both of my brands included, who who have made mistakes with content. A lot of times that's made because the room yeah, was full of people who yeah. all looked and sounded yeah. the same and had yeah. the same viewpoint. We uh, started saying at Notch that we want to hire for, not for culture fit, which tends to be the thing that everyone says, but for culture ad. Um, I heard you say that in one of your previous episodes, and I think that's what we're looking to yeah. as well, um, is don't just try to come in here and fit to the culture. Um, what can you add to it. Right. That is, and you also don't want a disruptor, like just a total disruptor for the sake of disruption. There's also right. that. Yep. But I think the word add really makes sense. I think so too. Yeah. Totally. Well, I'm glad we're ending this in, in violent agreement. <laughs> <laughs> I think we, we have violent agreement on a lot of stuff. I so, know, yeah. I know, I know. It's, thank uh, you. Thank you for having me. This is great. No, thank you. This was such a fun conversation. Excellent. I love that conversation with Chad, not just because we were able to finally sit down and do the much-awaited pros and content podcast with him, but also because we actually covered so much ground in so little time. We started talking about where content sits as a functional area 
Is it something that should be centralized or should it be a shared responsibility but still keep it decentralized across the company? This is one of the biggest conversation topics that we've had consistently across the podcast. So it was really interesting to hear Chad's perspective. We also talked about where does content sit between marketing and comms? Should there be a consolidation between the two or a collaboration between the two? We talked a bit about how content and the role of content differs across all the different industries that he's been in. And also we talked about the biggest challenge that Chad has had consistently across all those different experiences, which is also the same challenge that most of you have, I'm sure, which is measurement. More and more so, I hear about the idea of the mid-funnel and the challenge around really measuring the metrics that matter, that kind of map against that mid-funnel. And more and more, I'm becoming obsessed with it myself. So I bring it up in all of these podcasts. And, you know, yet again, I feel like I found someone who felt exactly the same, which is the mid funnel is a totally untapped territory that has a tremendous amount of opportunity for different data companies and not in particular to go conquer and try to answer that 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 question of what exactly is the mid funnel. And then finally, I think we talked um, a little bit about how it feels to evolve as a content leader in a data-driven world and just acknowledging that um, the world is changing faster than ever before and as we see the consumption and the technology platforms shift, the content leaders have to evolve and grow and constantly upskill as well. And we all know that, but it's just a really good reminder to hear, especially from someone like Chad, who's gone through so many different industries, that that's something we all have to focus on. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode. And for any feedback that you have, please email me at anda at prosandcontent.co. I would love to hear from you, especially if you'd like to nominate other speakers for us to feature. And if you want to hear more amazing content about the pros and cons of making content or being a better storyteller in today's world, please head to prosandcontent.co for more episodes. The best thing you could do for us is to rate, review, and share the series so we can grow the community and the much-needed conversation around the purpose and importance of brand storytelling. See you next time on Pros and Content.